So a non-Christian is scrolling through their, their social media feed or through YouTube or maybe through the television, and they, they're suddenly confronted with the supposedly Christian gospel that God has a wonderful plan for their life, that their, their greatest felt needs, their, their deepest desires can be satisfied in this life if they will just invite Jesus into their hearts. And they like the sound of that, a, a genuine, lasting solution to their battle with anxiety, depression, shame, guilt, and fear, the ever-present sense of, of meaninglessness. They like the sound of a solution, and, and whether it's made explicit or not, surely any plan for their life that can be described as wonderful also includes some measure of, of the things they most desire in this life, health, wealth, and prominence, the, the esteem of others. And so they commit to this new life of being a Christian. They start attending Sunday services, if not in person, then online. Maybe tuning in to, to Joel Osteen or, or T.D. Jakes or what have you. They even start giving financially to these ministries. A few weeks or months or maybe a few years pass by, but then it happens. Some tragedy strikes. The unexpected, untimely loss of a child or a spouse. The unexpected, untimely cancer diagnosis or maybe some financial disaster or career unraveling. Or maybe it's not so much a sudden tragedy as it is the, the gradual realization that the promise of a wonderful life has not become a reality. They're no more healthy or, or wealthy or esteemed now than they were before they became a, a Christian. And so what do they do? When the tragedy strikes or when the re realization comes upon them, what do they do? They turn their backs on this Jesus who has so greatly failed them. This happens to thousands of so-called Christians every single day. And yet, as we turn to the pages of the New Testament, from the book of Acts to the letters of the apostles, we see a, a radically different experience of hardship in the lives of the first Christians. We see Christians like the apostle Paul, who despite being repeatedly imprisoned for his faith years on end, suffering countless beatings, often near death, as he says, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure for decades on end. He endured to the end when he was finally executed by the Roman emperor. We see that in the New Testament. We see Christians like James, and the suffering churches to whom he wrote, not only remaining steadfast in the face of intense trials, refusing to shake their fists at God like Lieutenant Dan in the midst of the great storm, but we see them actually demonstrating some measure of, of worshipful joy in the midst of those trials. How is that possible? How can we so endure trials that we face without turning our backs on Jesus, as so many do. Well, I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1, verse 1. You can find it on page 228 in the second half of the Pew Bible. We're going to begin by reading the first four verses aloud. James chapter 1, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord to you. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let me pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, unlike most of the other letters of the New Testament, and unlike most ancient letters in general, James's greeting is very short. It's only one verse, and it lacks any explicit word of blessing or thanksgiving or prayer for his readers. Instead, after briefly identifying himself and his readers, he immediately dives into the topic of suffering trials. And and that indicates for us uh, what the most pressing matter is in the lives of his readers, and and thus the reason for his writing. They need encouragement to persevere, to remain steadfast in the face of trials. But before he gets to his truly shocking message about trials, uh, there's something to be learned from the way he identifies himself and the way that he identifies his readers. He begins, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grammatically there in the Greek, James could be saying that he is a servant of Jesus Christ who is both God and Lord. That's possible, but but even if he intends to to refer to both the Father and the Son to be their servants, at, at the very least, James is placing Jesus on the same plane as the Father. And throughout the rest of the letter, we'll see James alternate between applying the title Lord to the Father and applying it to Jesus as he does here in the opening. But it's not just what he says about Jesus that is striking, putting him on the same level as the Father. It's what James says about himself and what he doesn't say. He doesn't identify himself as an apostle, does he? Though we know from Galatians chapter 1.19 that he was an apostle. He doesn't identify himself as the leader of the first church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem though we know from Acts 15 and Acts 21 that he was. He doesn't identify himself as the younger half-brother of Jesus, born to Mary and Joseph, though we know from Matthew 13.55, Galatians 1.19, that he was. No, he doesn't identify himself as an apostle, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, or as the younger half-brother of Jesus. He simply identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that the first endurance principle of our passage, you must recognize that your life is not your own. It's not about you. For you are a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This calls for a posture of humility as you live out your days, the days that He has prepared for you. But at the same time, Uh, There is no more exalted position for a created being to have than to be a a faithful servant of your Creator God. Servant of God is actually an exalted title in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, applied only occasionally to people like Moses and King David. They are honored as servants of God. And so we see that the living faith 
that endures trials. Well, living faith endures trials by viewing yourself as a servant of God, created for His purposes, by delighting in that exalted position. That's endurance principle number one. View yourself as a servant of God, created for His purposes, and delight in that position. And then, immediately after that, comes endurance principle number two. Having identified himself, he identifies his readers. He says, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now, in the first century, even though hundreds of years had passed since the Jews were, were scattered throughout the Far East, first by the Assyrian captivity, where many in the north were taken captive in 722 B.C., and then by the Babylonian captivity of many in the south in 586, even though many of those families previously scattered throughout the world had made their way back to the land of Israel by the first century, with Israel still under foreign control and oppression, without a king from the line of David ruling over and prospering their nation, it would have still been appropriate to refer to the Jews of the first century as a whole as the twelve tribes in the dispersion. However, given the, the content of this letter, given the fact that Jesus was just declared to be Lord in Christ, it's clear that James is not simply writing to Jews in general, but rather to Christians in particular, with Christ's church now being the true people of God on the earth. The verb form of this word dispersion is found three times in the book of Acts to refer to Christians who were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire following the brutal murder of Stephen by unbelieving Jews in the streets outside the walls of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 7. They were dispersed. And it's to these dispersed and, and persecuted Christians that the Apostle James is writing from Jerusalem. They are the twelve tribes of the dispersion. And so are we. You see, while, while it's possible that uh, this particular letter of James was written so early in the life of Christ's church that all of James's readers would have been Jewish Christians. That's possible. Even so, the title still applies to all Christians in all places, for we are all strangers and exiles in this world, as this world is not our home. Peter uses the same language in his greeting to both Jewish and Gentile Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, referring to his audience as elect exiles of the dispersion. See, we are all exiles on the earth having been cast out of the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. But God is gathering souls into His eternal kingdom through the spread of Christ's gospel. And the day is coming when those who have been redeemed through the blood of Christ will be gathered into His glorious presence forever. This is endurance principle number two. Living faith endures by recognizing that this world is not our home. And so, as, as sojourning exiles on the earth, we do not expect to experience our best life now. This is not our home. We are sojourners and exiles in a foreign land. We'll circle back to this point at the end of our passage. For now, let's dive into the body of the letter, beginning in verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So you've been run out of your town for having openly talked to people about the lordship of Jesus. You've fled north to escape the persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. You have no land. You're forced to labor as a migrant worker in the fields of wealthier landowners. At times, there's no work to be had, whether due to famine or political instability. 
You're oppressed by the rich simply because you're poor. You're persecuted by everyone simply because you profess that Jesus is Lord. And you hear the the first two lines of this letter read aloud in, in a time of gathered worship with the Christians in your town, commanding you to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Is your response going to be, yeah, that makes sense? No, not if you're paying attention. No one has ever met a new trial and said, oh boy, what a joy. And yet, James is commanding us to consider the presence of trials in our lives as all joy, genuine joy. How? Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance, perseverance, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I distinctly remember standing outside of my grandmother's home when I was very young, and she explained the process by which a baby tree grows to be big and strong. You see, if two saplings sprout up on the same day, just a few yards apart from one another, same soil, same everything, and you build a a technologically advanced greenhouse around one, but not the other. And this great biodome, this this technological marvel, is able to perfectly regulate the amount of moisture in the soil and in the air, to perfectly regulate the temperature in the dome, and to perfectly regulate and filter the amount and kind of sunlight in order to create the optimal conditions for rapid growth. For the one plant, but you leave the other sapling just out in the elements, exposed to the scorching heat of the summer sun, the freezing cold of the winter storms, the downpours that oversaturate the soil, the droughts that starve the tree for water, and the winds that nearly push the little tree all the way to the ground. Well, once the, the pampered and protected tree outgrows its greenhouse, its dome, and the greenhouse is removed, which tree is stronger? Once the greenhouse is removed, the pampered tree won't make it through the first storm. As the storm rolls in and the winds bear down, its shallow roots will give way and the whole thing will come crashing down. Why? Because its strength was never tested. Without hardships, the roots of it were never forced to grow deep and strong, and so they never did. My grandmother taught me this by repeatedly whacking her little trees with a newspaper and even a broom to force their roots to grow deeper and stronger. This this seeming mistreatment was out of a genuine care for her trees. She wanted them to be strong, as strong as they could be. Well, so it is with faith. Without testing, our faith will not grow. Trials force our faith to grow deep and strong like the roots of those trees. The trials that test our endurance, our steadfastness, are the very things that produce that endurance. They don't just test it, they produce endurance. This is God's design, as James is saying, that that we need to understand this design. And this is endurance principle number three. Living faith endures by recognizing that God has a purpose in your trials. Endure by recognizing that God has a purpose in your trials. Now, that's not to say that that your spiritual maturation is the only reason that God allows any particular trial that you might face. No. 
Uh, Consider the example of Joseph. God did not allow him to be sold into slavery by his brothers merely for the sake of Joseph's sanctification, though that was part of it. As Joseph told his brothers years later, he said to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God has a purpose in our trials, as He did in Joseph's. And we recently saw this same providential hand of God at work in the trials that Naomi and Ruth faced in the book of Ruth. Well, God did not allow Naomi and Ruth to become childless widows in a foreign land merely for the sake of their personal sanctification, though that was part of it. For God was at work to establish the lineage from which King David would arise to lead His people. And from His line, the greater David, King Jesus. God is always doing far more than we could possibly fathom, certainly more than we can see. We must trust that God has a purpose in our trials. And that part of that purpose is the establishing of our own spiritual wholeness. That we to be complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. But that's easier said than done to trust that God has a purpose in our trials. And James addresses the difficulty of this in the next verse, verse 5. Hopefully you still have the text open before you. Verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now wait a minute, what what does wisdom have to do with remaining steadfast in the face of trials? It's understandable that, that trials would expose some lack in us, but... A lack of wisdom? Is that what comes to mind for you as you face trials and are exposed as as being inadequate for the task? Is it exposed that you lack wisdom? What, What does James mean by that? Well, James expects you to know your Hebrew Bible. He expects you to know the Old Testament, as this is a major topic addressed throughout those 39 books. It's not so much here the, the discerning wisdom that Solomon demonstrated, in cleverly being able to determine the best course of action in governing the people or in discerning who was and who wasn't telling the truth in a court case. You might remember that example of the discerning wisdom of Solomon. It's not so much that that James has in mind. It's not so much the proverbial wisdom revealed in the book of Proverbs about what behaviors uh, best lead to flourishing in the world that God has made and what behaviors lead to suffering. No, the wisdom most directly associated in the Old Testament with enduring trials of life in a broken world is what has been called contemplative wisdom. It's the wisdom of Job and the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. And James clearly expects his readers to be familiar with those two books of contemplative wisdom. And I say that because in chapter 5 of this letter, as we'll see when we get to it, James explicitly calls our attention to the suffering of Job. The book of Job is all about persevering through the pain of intense suffering. And even before chapter 5, when he talks about Job, in chapter 4 of James, he clearly alludes to the main theme of Ecclesiastes. Even using the word, the key word found 37 times in that book of Ecclesiastes, the word vapor or mist. See, Ecclesiastes is all about persevering through the confusion of our lives being nothing more than a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes and is forgotten, having made no discernible impact upon the world that we leave behind. These two books, 
Job and Ecclesiastes, they wrestle with the difficulty of making sense of what God is doing in and through our lives when so much goes so wrong so much of the time. And we're left asking, why? Why, Lord? That's what these books are meant to wrestle with. But remember, Job was not given any answers for why God permitted such suffering to befall him, was he? The preacher in Ecclesiastes was not given any answers for what God was doing through his seemingly insignificant, vapor-like existence. So what then is the wisdom? What's the wisdom of Job in Ecclesiastes? Do you know? When James says that you need to endure tri- what you need to endure trials is wisdom, and that God will grant you that wisdom if you simply ask for it, what is that wisdom? The wisdom of Job in Ecclesiastes is not about having the answers. It's about trusting that God does. Trusting that He knows what He is doing. And if this ability to trust God was available uh, to Job and to the preacher in Ecclesiastes, how much more is it available to us who live on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, where God has most emphatically proven His wisdom and His goodness and His power? Again, Job and Ecclesiastes were not given answers. So the wisdom that they were given was the ability to trust God when we don't understand what He's doing. That's what's being offered to us here in James chapter 1, verse 5. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. This is endurance principle number four. Living faith endures by turning to God in prayer, seeking spiritual Wisdom, the ability to trust God when we don't understand what He's doing. Endure by turning to God in prayer, seeking spiritual wisdom. I I first came to this understanding of the contemplative wisdom of the Old Testament when I I first preached through the book of James uh, six years ago, back in the summer of 2017. A year after that, just after I finished preaching through Ecclesiastes for the first time, uh, this teaching was put to the test in my own life. Within the span of a few weeks, Ashley and I lost uh, our first son, Micah, uh, through a disrupted adoption. Then Ashley discovered that she had ovarian cancer. Then I had to move to another state to hold on to my paying job, while Ashley stayed behind to have surgery and to begin chemotherapy. One tumultuous wave after another just kept hitting us in quick succession. And as we were grieving the loss of our son while fighting cancer and while trying to establish life in a new state, in a new workplace, a new church, the temptations toward anger and depression and anxiety began to well up, exposing a lack in us. And so we prayed. Daily, sometimes hourly or more, we prayed for the wisdom of Job and Ecclesiastes as our study of James had taught us. And God answered those prayers. He granted us the ability to trust Him when we couldn't understand what He was doing. We remained steadfast in the face of those trials. And we were even able to experience some measure of of worshipful joy as God refined us, and as God sustained us, and thus as God glorified Himself in and through us. And He will prove Himself faithful to you as well. 
As James, James instructs, chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom in these trials that you face, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. This is a promise. God's not going to berate you or belittle you or ignore you for, for asking for this wisdom. Saying, didn't you just ask for this yesterday? No. It glorifies Him when we openly express our dependence upon Him. He delights to answer these prayers, no matter how frequently we have to pray them. James continues, verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What's at issue here is having a genuine desire to please God. Rather than demanding deliverance from your circumstances or demanding an explanation for why God has allowed these trials. That's often our temptation as we, we come to God in prayer, as we face trials, is, is to demand an explanation. That's what Job did. Or is to demand deliverance from our circumstances. But that's not what we're being called to do here. We're being called to pray in faith for wisdom to endure the trial, to trust God in it. To be double-minded is to be two-faced. Claiming, on the one hand, to be devoted to, to Christ, to to be a person of faith, to possess true living faith, while your heart, on the other hand, is still devoted to your own worldly desires, such that you're easily tossed to and fro by every wind that comes, like the waves of the sea, not having taken hold of Christ as the anchor of your soul. It's a matter of divided loyalties. And James here is introducing a major theme of this letter, what could be described as the dominant theme of the letter, Self-deception. People who profess to be Christians, but whose lives say otherwise. For they do not bear the marks of a true living faith. We'll continue to, to wrestle with this question throughout the letter. The question, do you have a living, breathing faith? But for now, we'll turn to our final section for this morning, where James turns to uh, some specific trials that his audience was facing, namely poverty and wealth. And he uses these trials to help us learn yet another endurance principle that actually applies to all trials. Let's read about this. Verse 9, he says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. As you consider your trying circumstances, and as you look around at the circumstances of others, who is it that you count as blessed? Who is leading the blessed life here and now. Well, James is saying that it's the man who remains steadfast under trial who should be counted as blessed. The blessed life in this world is not about health or wealth or prominence. It's about faithfulness 
and nearness to God. A faithfulness and a nearness that produces steadfastness. And notice uh, this final endurance principle here, number five, which circles back to the second one about this world not being our home. Living faith endures by setting your gaze on the glory of what is yet to come. Endure by setting your gaze on the glory of what is to come. For when you, when you have stood the trust, you will receive the crown of life. And thus James can, can command the lowly brother, he says, the lowly brother, the poor Christian of humble circumstances, they are commanded to boast in their exaltation. Their exaltation as adopted children of God. Their exaltation as brothers and sisters of the King. Their exaltation as heirs of His eternal kingdom. For the day is coming when the redeemed exiles in this dispersion will be brought home. This is why Jesus can say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 